One Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. And for more information, please visit us on the web at onechurch.net. Awesome. Well, if you have your Bible, why don't you grab it with me and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Who's ready for the word this morning? Amen. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. Matthew chapter 5. If you're just joining us today for the first time, we have been in a series uh, for a number of weeks, and we probably will even through the fall months, a series that we are calling Counterculture. And uh, we are just talking about uh, what is the culture that God wants us as uh, followers of Jesus, what's the culture that we should have? And, uh, you know, ultimately God's plan is, yes, he wants us to go to heaven, but how many of you know he's got some work for us to do in the meantime? Uh, Jesus's primary message was not, believe in me so you can have eternal insurance. It was repent, change your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yes, we have the, the blessed hope of eternity with Jesus, but how many of you know heaven's the last place God wants you to go? think that through. He wants you to go there, but it's the last place he wants you to go. That's the final destination, okay? So you get that? And he's got something for us to do now. He wants us to be a manifestation of his kingdom on earth, a counterculture. You know, when we think about that word culture, uh, you know, really, it, I know that culture can be applied to a lot of things, but ultimately a, a culture is, is the character of a people in a place. The character of a people in a place. This week in Orlando, we've got kind of a cultural moment, and that is the 50th anniversary of Disney. You know it. The 50th anniversary of Disney. And uh, who's been to Disney in your life? Everybody, if you've not been, you need to go at some point in time. Whether you're a season pass holder or not, uh, Disney is part of uh, the, the history of Orlando, isn't it? And really the whole vision behind Disney came from, or behind Disney World, um, came out of the heart of Walt Disney. And he wanted a place that was different from the rest of the world. He had Disneyland in Anaheim, but he wanted a, a different place that could expand more and really be uh, uh, not just a theme park, but I think ultimately his vision was to have a, a city, to be a separate community and that would be distinct from the rest of the world around it. How many of you know that's pretty much true? How many of you know Disney is different than every place else, right? And Universal is awesome too. Um, but um, it's different. What is that? It's a culture. There, there was a vision for a culture. And, and Disney took a place that was really, I think, more or less just kind of a swamp in the woods, and they developed it into a place that became attractive to the world, a place where it's like there are no problems, you know, trash magically disappears, the sidewalks, gum gets cleaned magically off of the sidewalks, and it's different from the rest of the world. Who knows what I'm talking about? And that's actually a picture of what God wants the church to be, not necessarily the gum thing, although that's a good thing too, but God wants the church to be a counterculture. Just like when you walk into Disney, it's a different culture than the world around it. God wants the church to be a distinct counterculture from the world around us. 
And that's what we've been talking about. We talked about a, a culture of blessing, that Jesus said, blessed are the poor. In other words, even if you don't have all of the success and all of the material things that the world says you have to have to be blessed, Jesus still calls you blessed. We talked about a, a culture of purpose. We talked about a culture of conviction that Jesus reveals to us through his word how we should live. And I want to pick up on that today in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read verse 27 to 37. And uh, about 10 verses, if that's okay. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. That is true. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these, is from the evil one. Would you pray with me today? Father, I thank you for your word. And God, even as we read these words, Father, I sense the, I sense the, the weight of it. And God, we pray today that you would speak to us. Lord, let this not just be my words. Let it not be the thoughts of man. But Father, let each of us stand before you, Lord, to hear your word, God, that we would be obedient to your word, Father. We thank you for it. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we find another passage of scripture where Jesus is expounding the Old Testament. Each one of these passages, each one of these chunks, and we kind of read three chunks, starts off with, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And in each one of those passages, Jesus is referring to a teaching from the Old Testament, a teaching from the law, and he is now expounding on what that means for his followers today. He's, he's speaking that truth into the, the moment that we live in today. And um, this is one of those moments that Jesus gets all up in your business, how many of you would like it if Jesus just said the nice stuff? I would. How many of you would like it if Jesus just said the stuff that was totally irrelevant to you, but just dealt with other people? I would. But this is not one of those places. And unfortunately, as a pastor, to be honest, I don't have the luxury to just preach the passages I like. 
I've got to preach to you what the Bible says. And I've never preached out of this passage. And to be honest, even as I read it, I think, God, help us. Help all of us. We all need help. But like a, a good doctor, Jesus doesn't just deal with our symptoms. He deals with our sickness. How many of you know if you went to a doctor and, and he just said, uh, if, you, you know, if you feel good, you are good. Or if he just told you what you wanted to hear, how many of you know that wouldn't be a very good doctor? If he just said what felt good. I don't know about you. I don't want my doctor to just tell me what feels good. I want my doctor to tell me the truth. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's speaking the truth. He's getting all up in our business, all up in even our, our private thoughts. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to keep my private thoughts, my private thoughts. But Jesus gets into our business and he speaks about these Things And really, there's three issues that I want us to see that Jesus is addressing in this passage. The first issue that he's addressing is the issue of lust. The issue of lust. Now, in the Old Testament, he starts off by quoting the Old Testament by saying, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, to commit adultery, you actually had to do the deed. I'm going to keep it pg 13, at least. You actually had to do the deed. But now Jesus is saying, I'm actually going to expand that because I'm not just here to address the outward symptoms. I'm wanting to address the internal sickness, the internal problem. And so he says, I'm going to I'm going to expand this teaching. The Old Testament brought the, the, the teaching that you actually had to do the deed. But now I'm going to tell you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've already done the deed in your heart. Now, let's just go ahead and put it out here on the table. That puts us all in the same boat. That puts us all in the same boat. So if you're feeling like, oh, Jesus, help me join the club join the club, okay? And maybe you've not lusted in the same way that Jesus is talking about, but how many of you know we've all lusted in one way or another? Yeah. We've all lusted. Maybe it's not even just sexual lust, but maybe it's financial lust, or maybe it's positional lust that you just want what somebody else has. You lust after a, a position or you lust after success. We've all lusted in one way or another. And Jesus is dealing with the issue of lust. And here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that lust is a lie. Lust is a lie. You see, lust is a lie because it promises a satisfaction that it cannot deliver. How many of you know that, and you don't have to raise your hand for this, you just wink if you know what I'm talking about. Nobody ever follows through on lust or gives way to lustful thinking and afterwards goes, that was so satisfying. Nobody ever does that. It starts off by, by promising satisfaction that it can never deliver. It is a, a baited hook that is dangling in front of you but ultimately will lead to death. Death in our minds, death in our souls, death in our emotions. Because ultimately, God's purpose for sex is not just a physical experience. The world will tell us this. It's just physical. 
You're an adult. You have the right to do with your body what you want to do with your body. It is your body, after all, and my body, my rights. That's what the culture would tell us. But Jesus would say this, it's not just physical. It is the, the, the physical expression is actually a manifestation of a longing of our, uh, of our spirit that is manifesting in our souls. If it was just physical, how many of you know that there would not be so much damage in our world because of sexual abuse? It is more than physical. It's the longing of our soul. Now, it is a beautiful gift that God has given to us ultimately to be used in the context of marriage. I'll add this, that if, if Jesus wanted to revise the expression of sexuality, how many of you know this would be the moment that he would do it? If Jesus was going to say, guys, I know you know the Old Testament, but that was like 2,000 years ago, and we got to get with the times. we got to kind of loosen up a little bit. This would be the moment that Jesus would say that. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't abandon what the Old Testament says. He actually expands it. He expands it. Because ultimately, he wants us to understand that he has an eternal purpose greater than our temporal pleasure. There is an eternal purpose in the gift of sex. There is an eternal purpose in the gift of intimacy. Did you know that psychologists actually say that the, the uh, dopamines and the chemicals released in your brain in that moment is similar to what is released in heroin? In other words, God in his infinite wisdom has caused a man and a wife in the context of marriage to be addicted to one another, to be bound to one another, to be locked into one another. Wow, God is incredible. God is incredible. So number one, he deals with the issue of lust. Number two, he deals with the issue of divorce. In the Old Testament, it said Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. If you read the Old Testament, it says this, that if a man finds any uncleanness in his wife or unworthiness in his wife, he can give her a certificate of divorce. How many of you know unworthiness is a pretty big word? Anybody here have some unworthiness? Yes, we all do. And so under the Old Covenant... Basically, it was saying you can, a husband in particular, the man had the responsibility or the, the, uh, the right to give a divorce to his wife and it, pretty much for any reason he wanted. At least that's, that was the letter of the law. In fact, even in Jewish cultures today, in Orthodox Jewish culture, uh, women cannot get a divorce. Only the man can give a divorce. I was hearing this week on NPR the story about a Brooklyn rabbi who was part rabbi, part mafia. And he would be hired by women who wanted a divorce to go find their husband and convince him to give their certificate of divorce. You know, provide a little, a little motivation. You know what I'm saying? With a baseball bat. But what Jesus is saying is, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the spirit of this. The spirit of this is not just get divorced if you, whenever you want to. Now, what I want you to see is that Jesus does give an allowance for divorce. How many of you know in a perfect world there would be no divorce? But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a broken world. We live in a, a world where there is sin, where there is hurt. 
And I believe that, you know, if you have been impacted personally by that, as probably all of us have in one way or another, perhaps you've been divorced, perhaps you, you come from a, a broken family. I, I believe Jesus is not cold towards our, toward, towards our reality. He understands the pain, but ultimately what he's saying is that uh, divorce is not my will. You know, the Bible tells us that God hates divorce, and the reason he does is because God loves people. And because he loves people, he's saying, I want you to take this seriously. Now, again, I don't believe that this is about past condemnation. If you've walked through a divorce, God is not condemning you. God is not condemning you. In fact, we're all, he's putting us all in the same place. We're all in the same place. So if, you're, if you've been divorced, you're not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You're a saint. You're washed clean. You're first class. Your marriage, if you're in a, a second marriage, uh, you're not, your marriage is not second class. God loves you. It's not about past condemnation, but it is about present conviction. In other words, if you're married... Whoever you're married to, stay married. Now, how many of you know that there is some moments where marriage isn't always easy? All the married people said amen. Marriage is not always easy. You know, Jen and I went into marriage. We said we're never going to say the D word. We've said the M word, murder, but we've never said the D word. We've been tempted by murder, but divorce, never. No, all of us. I thought I was a great guy until I got married. I thought, I'm so patient. I'm really going to be a wonderful husband. And then I got married. And um, so Jesus is dealing not just with the issue of lust, not just with the issue of divorce, but he's also dealing with the issue, thirdly, of oaths, of oaths or swearing. Not the four-letter kind of swearing, but in verse 33, he says, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, uh, there was permission to make oaths. And he was, God was saying, make an oath, but just keep your oath. Don't swear falsely. And so the religious people who loved the letter of the law but did not commit to the spirit of the law made up this intricate system of swearing. Again, not four-letter swear words, but, but they would say something like, I swear, by the, I swear by the hair of my head, I'm telling the truth. And if they really wanted to tell the truth, they'd say, I swear by the temple. Or I swear by the throne of God. People say things like that today. I swear to God, Right? Swear on my mother's grave, whatever it is. And what Jesus is saying is that you should not need to swear. He's saying this, that if you, if, you know, it is uh, presumed that you're not telling the truth unless you swear by something, or if you have to swear by something greater and increasing degrees of greatness in order to really be telling the truth, then you may have a problem with the truth. If you have to have a, an addendum and a footnote and, and a prelude to everything you say to determine whether or not that is true or not, you may have a problem with the truth. Then yeah. that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you say yes, don't have to add an addendum onto everything. 
So he's talking about the issue of lust. He's talking about the issue of divorce. He's talking about the issue of oaths. But ultimately, what I want you to see, I believe there is an issue that, that is encompassing all of this, and that is the issue of commitment. The issue of commitment. Jesus says this, don't just, uh, don't just express lust, uh, you know, sexual lust. Be committed. Don't just get married and let it be just a piece of paper, but be committed. When you say something, be a person of your word. Be a person who says what you mean and means what you say. He's dealing with the issue of commitment. Now, how many of you know that commitment is countercultural in our day? We do not live in a culture of commitment. We live in a culture of convenience. And that's what Jesus is talking about. How many of you know lust is convenient? It doesn't cost you anything. There is no pursuit. There is no, the, no ongoing investment. It's just, it's just short term. It's not commitment. He's saying again and again that, that you should not just have a, a uh, marriage of convenience. How many of you know it's easier today to get divorced than ever? Have you seen any of the road signs that say $69 divorce? Right? Lust is easier today than ever. It's a billion-dollar business built on lust. The pornography industry is a pandemic, and we've all been affected. I read in a Christian magazine this week that there are uh, three internet pornography websites that, that are more often viewed than Netflix. How many of you know People are watching a lot of Netflix. So Jesus is talking about this culture that we live in, that we live in a culture of convenience. But he's saying this, I don't want you to be people that just live for what is convenient. I want you to be people that are marked by commitment. How many of you know, convenience will never produce anything good in your life. If you live out of what is convenient, it will produce death in your life. I mean, think about it in your health. They don't put the vegetables at the checkout line. <laughs> they put the candy at the checkout line. <laughs> Nobody accidentally grabs broccoli. <laughs> but if you live perpetually out of convenience, you will destroy your life. You will destroy your health. You will destroy if you, if you live perpetually out of financial convenience. Short-term loans. No investment for the future. How many of you know you will not live, uh, or you know, will not build a life that lasts? God has more for us than just to be living a life that is convenient. He's calling us to be a culture of commitment. A culture of commitment. God is calling us to be a culture of commitment in an age of convenience. If we want to be countercultural, just make a commitment. Commit to something. Commit to your family. Commit to uh, really anything in life. Make a commitment. But ultimately, commit to God. Commit to serving God. Commit to living a life that matters for eternity. So why does commitment matter? 
Is it because Jesus is just some, you know, uh, person of habit? No, ultimately, what I want you to see is that commitment is a, a reflection of the character of God. Our God is committed. Theologians use the term, it's his immutability. God is immutable. Use that word at a party, you'll sound very smart. God is immutable. Just say, I've, been, I've really been meditating on the immutability of God lately. He is immutable. That means he does not change. It's his unchanging will, his character and covenant. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad that God does not change like the world that we live in? God doesn't change every four years. God doesn't change by the mood that he's in and the level of his blood sugar. He is immutable. He is the same. He is solid. That's why Jesus finishes this Sermon on the Mount by saying that if you obey him, you are building your life upon a rock. Why? Because he is committed. Therefore, because he is committed, we as his followers are called to be a culture, not of convenience, but of commitment. God's calling us to be people of commitment. God wants us to be people of commitment. Commitment in even in our work, commitment in our, uh, I remember when I was a kid, my mom would say, if it's a job worth doing, it's worth finishing. She would encourage us to, to commit to something. Every part of life, God wants us to be people of commitment. So I want to give you three things that I believe are three aspects of commitment if we want to be a culture of commitment. The first thing, if we want to be a culture of commitment is this, that we need to recognize it starts with commitment with God. Commitment with God. My notes say commitment to God, but I'm going to, I'm going to rephrase that to commitment with God. And the reason I say that is because ultimately our commitment to God is merely the reflection of his commitment to us. God is committed to you. Aren't you glad that God is not like that old uh, playground, uh, you know, romance rhyme? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. There's some people that live their spiritual life. He loves me, he loves me not. I've been good. He loves me. I'm really good. Oh, I've been bad. He loves me not. And we live our lives on a perpetual roller coaster because we don't understand that our relationship with God is not based on our commitment to him, but his commitment to us. That was the whole message of the law. You can't do it. I can't do it. Jesus says that he brought a new covenant that was based in his blood. So your relationship to God and God's love for you is not based on your performance. Who's glad for that? If I behave good, you know how much God loves me? The same. If I behave badly, do you know how much God loves me? The same. Infinite. He's the same. He's committed to me. Isaiah says it this way and really foreshadowing the reality of the new covenant. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16 says, can a woman forget her nursing child? How many of you know, men, we forget. Women, you don't forget. You're committed. But he says, 
Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Now, I don't know if that is a reference to a hand tattoo, but you can take it that way if you like. What is God saying? He's saying, I've got your name on my hand. How many of you know, if you put a name on your hand, that is commitment. And that's what God is saying about you. I am committed to you. I love you. Before you loved me, I loved you. Before you were committed to me, and even when you're not committed, even when you falter in your commitment, my commitment to you is unchanging. It's immutable because I love you. It's the nature of God. Now, here's the interesting thing that his commitment to us sparks our commitment back to him. When he loves us, we begin to say, God, I I, want to be committed to you. I want to be committed to you. You see, in every statement of I love you, there is is within it a question, do you love me too? And when God says, I love you, our hearts respond, God, I love you too. God, I've not acted like it, but I do. I love you. I love that story of, of Peter. At the moment that Jesus needed Peter, Peter fled. Think about the story of, the, of Mary Magdalene. Theologians say that it was likely Mary Magdalene who was the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus here is talking about adultery. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he loves us enough to tell the truth, but he loves us unconditionally. I told you a few weeks ago that God calls us to be a community of compassionate conviction. We are committed to the truth, but we're also committed to people. We're committed to loving people. And here you see the love of Jesus towards a woman caught in adultery. The Bible tells us, I believe it's in John chapter 4 or 7, I forget, but they bring this woman and throw her at Jesus' feet. And, And the religious people say, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And Jesus stoops down and he writes something in the sand. We don't know what he wrote. But he gets up and he he says to the woman, uh, as the men leave, or actually he says to them, he without sin cast the first stone. One by one they drop their stones and walk off. And he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Where are your condemners? She says, there are none. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice he doesn't say, you know, Just live however you want to live. He says, I have something better for you. I have something greater for you. You're looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. I am the one who will satisfy you. And this woman who had never known what it meant to be in a committed relationship for the first time experienced commitment. She experienced commitment in the love of the eyes of Jesus. A man who for the first time saw her not for what she could do for him, but loved her in her nakedness, her brokenness, her sinfulness. He still loved her. The Bible tells us that it was Mary Magdalene who stood at the foot of the cross when all of the disciples, all of the apostles ran. It was Mary, the woman who had encountered love for the first time. The woman who saw in the eyes of Jesus what true love was, 
out of that commitment, she says, he loved me when I was at my worst. How can I leave him? Why? Because his commitment to us sparks our commitment back to him. Maybe you've been struggling with sin. Maybe you've been struggling, wavering in your faithfulness. Let me give you some good news. God is committed to you. God loves you. And at the cross, at the cross, God demonstrated, I'm not limited by convenience. I'm living and I'm loving out of my commitment to you. How many of you know the cross wasn't convenient? It wasn't convenient. It was his commitment. I love a story that I read, a book that I'd recommend to all of you that was called War of Loves. And it's written by a guy named David Bennett who grew up knowing from a young age that he was gay. And he grew up in church, or at least in a religious home. But he knew at a young age that he was attracted to men. And he, in his teens, began to live in a relationship with a boyfriend, and that progressed on through his 20s. But something happened one day. David was invited by a friend to go to church. And I don't have time to tell the whole set of circumstances, but his friend didn't condemn him. His friend didn't criticize him. His friend was so loving and winsome that he couldn't help but be drawn to what she had. And he went to church and he encountered this incredible love of God. Now, he didn't break up with his boyfriend on that day. He just found this incredible love. And he says in his book, he said, I, I found what I had been looking for my entire life. Now, let me say this, whether you're single or married, whether you may identify as gay or straight, ultimately, the love we long for will only be satisfied by God. If you look for satisfaction in any other relationship, you will be perpetually dissatisfied. If you think, if I could just get married, then I'd be satisfied. My mom said this to me, don't marry an unhappy girl because you can't make her happy. <laughs> Same is true for girls. Don't marry an unhappy man because you can't make him happy. Because only God can satisfy us. But David found this love greater than anything he had ever known. And for years, he would go to church and he loved God. He began to follow Jesus. But he was also uh, an active member of the gay community in Sydney and a gay activist. And he was continuing in the relationship with his boyfriend. And then after about three years of, uh, of uh, going to church, one day his boyfriend said to him, and I encourage you, read this book, War of Loves. One day his boyfriend said to him, David, I don't think you should be doing this anymore. He said, David, I know that, that we love each other, but David, you've found a greater love. And I don't think the love you have for Jesus is compatible with what we're doing together. And David, who was the one who professed that he was a Christian, was finding his boyfriend telling him how he should be living his life. And David said, I recognized he was right. 
And he talks in this book, War of Loves. Again, this is not a message about homosexuality or uh, being gay or straight or gay marriage. Again, let me say this. We're all in the same boat. I'm in the boat. It's called sinners. We're all in that boat. But he said this, I realized that the love I had been longing for could only be satisfied in Jesus. And he committed to living a life that was in line with what he saw Jesus saying to him. And now he lives as a celibate man. And I know our culture would say, well, how, can you, how could you put that on someone to be celibate? But let me say this, Jesus puts it on all of us. Sex outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, Jesus calls sin. And I'm guilty, at least in my thoughts. And so this is not a message of condemnation, but it's a, a message saying that God has something greater for us than just temporal satisfaction, than just temporal pleasure. He has eternal pleasure, eternal love. And so number one, it starts with commitment with God. I want to encourage you again, whether you're married or single, whether you would identify as gay or straight, that ultimately only God can satisfy your love. Only God can deal with our commitment issues. So number one, it's commitment to God. Number two, it's commitment to others. You see, out of this commitment from God flows a commitment to others. Because if God is committed to me, even at my worst, who am I to only love others when it's convenient? And of course, first of all, that begins in marriage. And I need to move very quickly. First of all, it begins in marriage. And again, it's not a message of condemnation over our past. But if you're married today, God is calling you to be committed. Now, that's not just about a boundary, that's, a, that's about a blessing. God wants your marriage to not be a ball and chain that you pull around. God wants you to see that within commitment, there is beauty. That's why Proverbs says this in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. This is the PG-13 part. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets. How many of you know this is a thinly veiled analogy? Let them be only your own. Y'all are acting incredibly puritanical on me. <laughs> Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's the Bible, guys. This church. Got to read the Bible as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Anybody else getting blessed by this? Woo! And always be enraptured with her love. Some of you married people need to go home and put into practice what we're preaching today. <laughs> For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? What's, what's God saying? God's saying my design for marriage is that it will be a, a little private well of delight in a world that is 
parched for love and intimacy. God is saying in marriage, there is an ever-flowing fountain of satisfaction. Why? Because it's an expression of God's love for us. So I want to encourage you today, be committed to your spouse. Not just committed to not commit adultery, but be committed to sow into your marriage. Plan date nights. Plan getaways. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Morning. Afternoon. <laughs> evening. <laughs> all times. In other words, what he's saying is that the antidote to adultery one of the greatest antidotes is a beautiful cultivation of intimacy. Cultivating this beautiful intimacy is what God has planned for us. You see, here's the thing about porn. Porn will never satisfy. It can't satisfy. It will leave you perpetually dissatisfied. Marriage, the, the, the cultivation of intimacy in marriage, that's God's plan of commitment. Not that you would have a string of people that you've given your heart to and it's been broken again and again. You know, the beauty of, uh, of relationships, the beauty of marriage is not just on the wedding day. That's the first day. You don't even know what you're getting into at that point. <laughs> the beauty of marriage is on the last day. Have you ever seen one of those couples that they kind of start looking like each other? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you know what I'm talking about. They start looking like each other. Y'all are morphing into each other before our very eyes in a beautiful way. And that's God's plan. Young love, awesome, but commitment is where it's at. Yeah. Commitment is where it's at. God's plan for us is commitment. I got I to gotta finish very quickly. That's true not only in relationships, it's true also or in marriage. We all have the opportunity to practice commitment in relationships. Even in church, we have the opportunity to practice commitment. Uh, you know, there is something that I often call church porn. I know I should have given a, I got my kids here. I don't see other people's kids. But church porn is looking at everybody else's church Instead of loving the church you have. You can look at all the other churches. Now let me say this. That's not just about church members. That's also about pastors. That's also about pastors. Pastors can think if I just could climb the corporate ladder. If I just got a bigger church. If I just got a different church. If I could just not got this or that. I'd really be satisfied. And they don't love the one they're with. Eight years ago, we planted this church. And I, I said yes to God's call at that time. I know over this last year and a half, we've all had the opportunity to go with something more convenient. But you want to know the beauty of church? It's not the vibe in the room. It's not the filter on our Instagram. The beauty of the church is the stories we heard up here this morning. That's the beauty of the church. And that only comes out of commitment. That only comes out of commitment. I want to honor, actually, I want to say thank you to all of you guys. I'm over on my time. I got to wrap this up. I'm going to speak very quickly. 
I'm seeing the kids over there. They're not as flexible. <laughs> but thank you. Um, I want to say thank you to each and every one of you guys for your commitment in this season. Church has been tough. It, it's easy to float off. But you haven't. Thank you. Thank you for your commitment. Love you too, Joel. Thank you. I want to honor a few people that have been committed even since the beginning of our church. Jeff and Sherry Walker, would you stand up? Jeff and Sherry, when Jen and I got prayed over at Markham Woods eight years ago and sent down here to, uh, to plant this church, I got to tell you, at that moment, it was a lot of excitement. The church was clapping, and they came up and said, we're going with you. How many of you know it's easy when everybody's clapping? It's hard when it's set up in teardown time. They've been committed for eight years. They are pillars they are incredible people. You won't find people better than Jeff and Sherry Walker. <laughs> Jarrett, I'll make you stand up too. I don't know where Justine is, but Jarrett, and I could say this honestly all over the room, but I just want to, I want to demonstrate this value of commitment. Jarrett and Justine moved here in part to be a part of this church. And it has been tough. Brothers don't always get along. But Jarrett has been incredibly committed to not only me as his brother, but me as his pastor. And, and Justine, they've been faithful to serve. Pure gold. Pure gold. Thank you, Jarrett. Jason and Sarah Griffin. Sarah's off with the kids. Is she in here? They've been apart since the beginning as well. And I don't say there's no more value on somebody that's just been apart from the beginning than somebody that's come within the last six months. Wherever you're at, let's be committed. Let's be a culture of commitment. The beauty of the church is not the excitement in the moment. I love the excitement of a, of a moment. But the beauty of a church is 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when we can say this little boy is saved because his parents walked into a building on Lee Road and they encountered something that transformed their lives. That's the beauty of the church. I want to ask if you would to stand up with me. We're gone too long.